Amen. So, today we're going to ask the question, why do we give? If you have your Bibles, open to the book of Acts, chapter 4. We're going to look just shortly at the story of Ananias and Sapphira, um, just sort of as an introduction to giving and, and this message. But then we're going to kind of be all over the place um, after that. So we're not going to spend a lot of time here. This is just going to kind of prepare the way for the rest of the message. Uh, Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32. Acts 4:32 says this, Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And a great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, prepare us this morning uh, to think about this topic of giving. I pray that our hearts will be changed and that we, Father, would live lives of service and giving in everything that we do. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So how would you answer this question? It's a question that we ask a lot around here. It's simple. What do you love the most? What do you love the most? Really think about that. Think about this. What if every person here were to come up to this stage right now, one by one, and answer that question? With everyone watching, what do you love the most? And I'm sure that many of us would give uh, an answer to that question with some kind of churchy answer, right? And in fact, I hope we would. I hope that your answer would be that your deepest love is for Christ, 
in his church. That your love for your brothers and sisters in Christ is stronger and more powerful than your love for your biological brothers and sisters. But I wonder what we would find if we were to take an inventory of how you spend your life. Would it match what you say you love? If we were to look at your bank account or look at how you spend your time or how you're using your gifts and talents, would we come away convinced that what you say you love is actually what you love? You see, it is one thing to say you love Christ and his church and another thing to prove it with your life. Now, as you can see from the screen today, we're going to try to answer the question, why do we give? And the giving I'm going to talk about is primarily financial giving. But hopefully we'll see that the biblical principles for financial giving extend far beyond the monetary. We should be giving of ourselves in all kinds of ways. We should be giving financially. We should be giving of our time. We should be giving of our gifts and talents. We should be giving of our thoughts and efforts to the work of ministry. We should be giving our words and listening ears to build up the body of Christ. There are all kinds of ways that we can live a life of giving. And the big truth that I want to get across today is this. What you love the most is what you give yourself to the most. What you love the most is what you give yourself to the most. We have separated this, this idea of love. We think that we can say or have affection for something in our hearts, whatever that means, but then act in a way that shows that we love something else and still claim, well, I really love Christ. Because really we... For some reason, we have inherited this idea of love is just simply about our feelings or affections towards something, whether we actually put that into practice or not. And so though many of us would come up to this stage and say we love Christ, we love his church, I say prove it. Let's look. Let's see what we really love. Ananias and Sapphira showed the true colors of their heart, not when they held back a portion of their money. We see that from the text. They were free to give as much as they wanted or as little as they wanted of that money. But the, the, the true color of their heart was shown when they decided to lie about how much they had given. They wanted the praise of men. They wanted to be thought well of by others. They wanted the appearance of sacrifice without any real sacrifice. So when it comes to financial giving, what we love the most is what we will give ourselves to the most. Yes, Ananias and Sapphira gave financially. That's a good thing. But they gave themselves most to their own reputation. The issue was worship. Their gift was overshadowed by their lie and their idolatry. If we say we love Christ more than anything else, then that should be evident in how we spend the money our Heavenly Father has entrusted to us. Christ said it best when he said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. 
Now, if you've grown up in church your entire life, like I have, you've probably heard all kinds of sermons about giving or tithing. And now, here's another one from another pastor asking for more money. Laying the guilt trip down, right? Like Just like all those TV preachers. And you watch TBN for 10 minutes and you're like, oh my gosh, I don't believe the word this guy's saying, but I want to give money because he just lays this guilt trip down on you, right? And show these pictures of, you know, starving children. And, and I'm not minimizing that at all. I'm just saying that I hope this doesn't come across as something like that. I know many people immediately grow uncomfortable when a pastor starts talking about money. It seems a little too self-serving, doesn't it? And quite honestly, it seems a bit too intrusive for most of us. But I hope that you'll see that my desire this morning is not to scare anyone into giving to our church. In fact, if you're not a member of Redeemer Church, we don't expect you to give. Now, as a Christian, I hope that you are giving. Okay, if you're calling yourself a Christian, but if you, if you have not covenanted with this body, with Redeemer Church, then we don't necessarily expect you to be giving to Redeemer Church. But my desire is to show you from God's word that giving financially is the natural response that we should have to the grace we've been shown in Christ. If what I've said is true, that what we love the most is what we give ourselves to the most, that should be evident in the way we handle our money. Now, some of you probably didn't grow up in church. You might genuinely be, genuinely be wondering, yeah, why do people give to the church? Or maybe you're wondering if we're in some kind of financial straits as a church. We're preaching on giving. must mean the bank account's getting low, right? Preach on giving, get people, kind of guilt them into giving. Uh, let me assure you that is not the case. In fact, in recent weeks... God has been blessing this church financially more than we were ever expecting. It's been amazing. So let's praise God that our church is not in a financial crisis. But it still begs the question, why am I preaching on giving? So before I even answer the question, why do we give? I'm going to answer a preliminary question. Why preach on giving? Why is Caleb preaching on giving? In order to begin to answer that question, I want to point us back to the account we just read from Acts. Ananias lied to the apostles. And Sapphira lied to the apostles. But that was only after believing a lie themselves. They believed that the praise of men was more important than the purity of the church. The reason God judged them so severely is not because he was in a bad mood that day or because the sin of Ananias and Sapphira was any more heinous than our sin. No, the reason God struck them down is because that was exactly what they deserved for not taking seriously the purity of God's people. The church had just been born. And here come Ananias and Sapphira perverting it tainting it with their sin. And this is God judging, saying, this will not stand. You all deserve this. We all deserve what Ananias and Sapphira got. God did them no injustice. They believed that they could use money to show that they were making a huge sacrifice by pretending they were giving more than they were. They had believed a lie which led them to lie to the church. 
And I think most of us have a tendency to believe the lies this world tells us, especially when it comes to money. The fact is we are bombarded with lies about money all day, every day, saturated by the love of money. And so we don't even realize the way we think about our money and possessions is probably inconsistent with the biblical teaching. So the first reason I'm preaching on money is because we are prone to believe the world's lies. So what are some of the lies we believe, even as Christians living in a fallen world? I'm going to go through just a few different lies that we tend to believe as Christians. The first is what I call the church lie. Since we're here, gathered as as the church, I'm going to start with this one. This is a lie hopefully not many of us have bought into, but it's still is sort of there, and we see it in our culture at large. I'm going to illustrate this lie by reading a quote from David Platt from his book, Radical. This is what David Platt writes. I remember when I was preparing to take my first trip to Sudan in 2004. The country was still at war. The Darfur region in western Sudan had just begun to make headlines. A couple of months months before we, uh, before we left, I received a Christian news publication in the mail. So the front cover had two headlines, side by side. I'm not sure if the editor planned for these particular headlines to be next to each other, or if he just missed it in a really bad way. On the left, one headline read, First Baptist Church Celebrates New $23 Million Building. A lengthy article followed celebrating the church's expensive new sanctuary. The exquisite marble, intricate design, beautiful stained glass were all described in vivid detail. On the right was a much smaller article. The headline for it read, Baptist Relief Helps Sudanese Refugees. Now, knowing I was about to go to Sudan, my attention was drawn. The article described how 350,000 refugees in western Sudan were dying of malnutrition and might not live to the end of the year. It briefly explained their plight and sufferings. The last sentence said that Baptists had sent money to help relieve the suffering of the Sudanese. I was excited until I got to the amount. Now remember, what's on the left? First Baptist Church celebrates new $23 million building. On the right, the article said, Baptists have raised $5,000 to send to refugees in western Sudan. $5,000. That is not enough to get a plane into Sudan, much less one drop of water to people who need it. $23 million for an elaborate sanctuary. $5,000 for hundreds of thousands of starving men, women, and children most of whom are dying apart from faith in Christ. Where have we gone wrong? Where, how did we get to the place where this is acceptable? That's what David Platt writes. And I just I throw that one out there because that is a huge temptation. We see that all over in our culture, and we kind of pride ourselves. At least I shouldn't throw you in with me. I kind of pride myself thinking like, well, that's not us. I mean, look where we're meeting, right? I mean, we rent our building. We are so kind of hipster. We're just kind of grungy, keeping it low, keeping it cheap, right? That's not us. I mean, that kind of thinking creeps in. It creeps in. And we have to constantly be reevaluating ourselves. 
How are we spending the money God's entrusted to us? Are we buying into this church lie that bigger is better and we need this big building? We need more people. We need numbers, numbers, numbers. That's preached to us constantly. It's easy to buy into that lie. The second lie that we buy into is the commercial lie. We cannot watch television or even an online video without being bombarded with advertisements telling us that we need whatever product they're selling. You need this to make yourself beautiful. You need this to impress someone else. You need this to make your life more comfortable. You need this simply because it's better than what you have right now. What does Paul say we need? We brought nothing into the world. We cannot take anything out of the world. If we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. Another lie we tend to believe is that everything and everyone should be thought of in monetary terms. This is huge. Everything and everyone should be thought of in monetary terms. So we hear things like, time is money. Instead of seeking to redeem the time and to make the most of it for the glory of God, we begin to think that if we are not doing something towards the end goal of making more money, we are wasting our time. Friends, if we think this way about the time that God has given us, it is doubtful that any of us will ever really be able to minister to anyone else in the church. Because if we think of time only as money, We will always feel like we are wasting our time when we spend it weeping with those who weep. Or when we spend it at the hospital after the birth of a child or the death of a loved one. Or when we spend it dealing with the sin of a brother or sister or even dealing with our own sin. Time is precious. Time is a gift. But time is not money. Ideas are money. This is a lie we believe. Rather than using our gifts and talents and creative ideas to benefit others and serve the church, we are conditioned to think that we have to try to get as much money as we can out of our ideas if they are going to be used at all. You got a good idea? Turn it into a business. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with starting a business to make money, support yourself and your family. By all means, go for it. But using those same gifts and talents within the context of the church is almost always an afterthought. It's something we do if we have the time or if we can work it into my real life of working for financial gain. The value of my job is monetary. This is another way we think of everything in monetary terms. Many people believe that the value of their vocation is only as great as their salary. Therefore, we should choose our college degree based on how much money we think we can make in that particular field. Money influences everything that we think about. Therefore, we begin to think about the value of our vocation not in terms of exercising stewardship over God's creation, but rather only in terms of monetary gain. And our single goal becomes to find a job making as much money as we possibly can because that means I am really doing something important. And I've dealt with this. The job I work is not a glorious job. I don't get paid by the world standards a lot to do it. And so there are many times where I think... I am deserving of something more than this. 
My job is hard. Look what I deal with. So the value of my job, rather than finding the value of my job in God's uh, principles of stewarding his creation, being faithful to what he has allotted me, I just find it in monetary terms. I think if I got paid more money, I'd do this job a whole whole lot better, right? The The last way we think about everything and everyone in monetary terms is that people become money. We begin to view other people only in monetary terms. We begin to value people only to the degree that they can provide some kind of financial return for us. We may not see this in our sort of everyday friendship relationships, but we hear, this, we hear about this a lot in sort of corporate business settings. Someone is only valuable to the company insofar as they can pull their own weight and justify their own position by benefiting the company financially. Now, I realize that this kind of thinking is somewhat necessary in the business world. Okay, So I'm not saying that uh, an employer has to keep people on his team if they're not doing the job he has hired them to do. By all means, exercise good business practices, fire people who don't perform up to the standard or, or whatever. But I think it's possible to begin to think of people not as persons bearing the image of God, but only as machines wired to produce a certain amount of product. There is definitely no place for this kind of thinking in the church of Jesus Christ. People are valuable because they have been created in the image of God, not because they can justify their own existence by contributing monetarily. The last lie we we tend to believe about money is that the money we have belongs to us. We forget that God is the creator and sustainer of all things. And everything we have, he has given to us for his glory and for the good of others. So that's all under one. So we are prone to believe the lies of this world. And then we go through all those different lies. We can, we can, keep, we can talk for days about the lies we believe when it comes to money. But the second reason why I'm preaching on, on giving today I'm going to bring it down a little more personal. The second reason I've decided to preach on giving is simply because some of our own members, members of this church, are not giving faithfully to the ministry of the church. Now let me be as clear and concise as I can be here. If that's you, you are not being faithful to the covenant you made with this body. When it comes to giving to this church financially, our church covenant reads this way. We will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, the spread of the gospel, both to our neighbors and to all nations, not only with our finances and resources, but also with our lives, participating in the mission to build redemptive communities of gospel-centered people. If you're a member of Redeemer Church, you signed that statement. Some of you are not giving faithfully to the ministry of this church. Now, I already know the response that some people are thinking. But wait, Caleb, you just said that our church is doing fine financially. In fact, we are. We're doing more than fine right now. You said that God is blessing us more than we ever expected. And this is all happening without my giving, so you shouldn't be too upset about that. But friends, the ends don't justify the means. 
your sinful neglect of the covenant you made with this body is still just that, sinful neglect. Whether we can pay the bills or not. So to sit idly by and excuse yourself from fulfilling a covenant you made, and as we will see, which is also the expectation of Scripture, is to excuse yourself from the, from the blessings of God. It is the same principle that Jesus so clearly articulated. When we try with all of our might to hold on to the things of this world, we forfeit our soul. When we give them up freely and cheerfully, we gain everything. So, with all that, hopefully you can see why I've chosen to preach on this topic. But now to actually answer the question at hand. Why do we give? Well, the first reason we give, particularly financially, is because giving is the New Testament pattern for believers. Which is really a soft way of saying it's commanded in Scripture. Just a general reading of the New Testament bears this out. From the very beginning of the church all the way through, we see that Christians are marked by an uncommon and countercultural generosity. We are told in Acts 2, verses 42 through 47, all who had believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. The passage we just read in Acts 4, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. As we read on through the New Testament, we see that the Apostle Paul spent a large amount of his time and energy taking up a collection from churches all around the world to bring back to the church in Jerusalem. Paul expected his fellow believers to give faithfully to the work of a church in a place most of them had never been and was comprised of people they would never meet. Paul had high expectations for Christians to give, and so should we. James tells us that true religion is to care for widows and orphans in their distress. In this way, we prove our faith is genuine. John reminds us not to love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. To put it simply, giving is an act of obedience. From start to finish, the New Testament expects Christians to be givers, not takers. The second reason we give is because giving is an act of love. Remember the question I asked at the beginning, what do you love? If we say we love Christ and his kingdom, then should not our finances prove it? If there is one area essential to proving or evidencing our love for Christ, it is in our attitude and actions towards money. Remember what John tells us. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For John, it was black and white. You cannot love the world and love the Father. There's only room for one on the throne of our hearts. If we love the world, we will do everything we can to hold on to what the world tells us is most important 
And we'll be unwilling to let our money and possessions go for the glory of God. And what does John tell us about the things of the world in that passage? 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. He tells us the things of the world are passing away. In fact, they are passing away right before our very eyes. The excitement of our possessions is constantly passing away. It doesn't take long for the newness of that possession to wear out. Think of any possession or uh, that our culture prizes, cars, houses, gadgets, stylish clothing. We could probably all share about a time when we got one of those things, and it was awesome for a season. But then the newness and the excitement wears off, and we are once again left feeling empty, like we need something else. iPads are pretty sweet until the new one comes out. And you're like, man, got to get the new one now. What other ways do earthly possessions pass away? Well, the physical beauty of our possessions is constantly passing away. Our clothes wear out. Our jewelry fades. Our car gets dirty and stinky, especially with children. The functionality of our possessions is constantly passing away. Our computers and gadgets break down. They get damaged, stolen, hacked. None of these things will last forever. And the oft-repeated phrase is absolutely true. You never see a Hirsch pulling a U-Haul. In the end, we will all lie on our deathbed. None of us will be wishing we had kept more of our stuff. No one will regret what they have given away. Jonathan Edwards in his resolutions writes, Resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. And again he writes, Resolved to think much on all occasions of my own dying and of the common circumstances which attend death. Church, how we would spend our lives differently if we would, be, if we would realize that we are at all times and everywhere only a breath away from eternity. If we would live with a view to eternity, I'm convinced that parting with our money and possessions would be no big thing. Because we'd be convinced that we have a lasting possession and an abiding one waiting for us. Why are we so attached to our stuff? When we give... We are reminding ourselves that what we have does not belong to us. It belongs to God. And he is powerful enough and loves us enough to take care of us, whether we have the things we think we need or not. And when we give of our money, of our time, of our possessions, we are saying to the physical world and the spiritual world that our trust is in our holy sovereign, loving creator. There are people in need all around us. There is so much work to be done 
to take the gospel to our community and around the globe. And all of that work costs money, lots of money. You think about what a plane ticket costs to, I don't know, southern Mexico. I know you could drive there. I'm just trying to think of somewhere close that you might fly to. It's a lot of money, much less across the world. If we're going to go to India, I mean, we're talking hundreds of dollars just to get there. The work of the ministry is expensive. When we give to the work of the ministry, we are proving that our faith and love are genuine. We are bridging that gap between what we say we love and what we act. We are refusing to put our hope in the things of the world and declaring to the world that our hope is in our sovereign creator who cares for us by providing everything we need. Giving is an act of love. Love to God, love for his church, love for others. Last, why do we give? Because giving models Christ who gave everything for us. Jesus talks about money more than heaven and hell combined in the New Testament. This is also why the Bible contains twice as many verses about money, which is about 2,350 of them, 2,350 verses about money. Um, Twice as many verses to money than than the Bible spends on faith and prayer combined. Randy Alcorn in his book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, writes this. The sheer enormity of Scripture's teaching on this subject screams for our attention. And the haunting question is this, why? Why does God give us so much instruction on money and possessions? Considering everything else he could have told us that we really want to know, why did the Savior of the world spend 15% of his recorded words on this one subject? Why did he say more about how we are to view and handle money and possessions than about any other single thing? Why? What did he know about money and possessions that we don't? Jesus knew that money has always been and will always be the number one contender for the throne of our hearts. Nothing models the sacrificial love of Christ more than when we treasure Christ, when we treasure others more than money and possessions. Mark 10.45 tells us, Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Galatians 3, or 1.3 says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. When we give of ourselves, whether financially or of our time, of our resources. We put Christ on display. The watching world will look at us in wonder. They may scoff and deride us. They may think we are ignorant and stupid for giving away our hard-earned money. But deep down they know that holding on to their money and possessions 
will only leave them empty and looking for more. When we give ourselves away, we look most like our Lord. Christ gave everything. I mean, you just read through the Gospels. Christ is always giving. He's never a taker. He's always a giver. Think about that. Always giving. Think about how we take with our words. Think about how we take with our thoughts. Think about how we take with the effort that we put into things. We think we're working hard towards something, but we're really holding so much back, keeping so much for ourselves. Jesus was a giver. He gave everything. When we give ourselves away, we look most like our Lord. It is a picture of the gospel to give. Now, that's a really quick answer to the question, why do we give? We could talk about a lot of other reasons why we give. But I want to end by giving a lot of just what I hope will be helpful application here. Because I know that maybe some, some of you here didn't grow up in church. Uh, maybe this is a new thing for you. Maybe you've never heard a message on giving. Maybe you don't even know why Christians give to their churches. Maybe this is all brand new. And so I, I want to be sure to give some principles for giving that I think we find in, this, in the scriptures. And I'm going to get most of these from Randy Alcorn's book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, which, by the way, yeah, you know, I, I read most of that this week as I was preparing for this message. It is a phenomenal book. I mean, if you need somewhere to start to think about giving, read Randy Alcorn, Money, Possessions, and Eternity. It's worth its weight in gold. There's a, there's a, you know, thinking of everything in monetary terms there. That's right. It's built in. So, principles for giving. Now, hopefully we've seen that giving financially to the work of ministry is something that all Christians should be doing, okay? So what are some principles? Where should you start? Well, the first thing you should do is give. <laughs> Pretty simple. Christians give. There are no exceptions. Now, not all will give the same, but all will give. 2 Corinthians 9 says that each one should give as he has decided in his heart. It is a sad statistic that four out of ten church attenders give nothing. And another three out of ten give next to nothing. The act of giving is a vivid reminder that our life is all about God, not about us. It says, I am not the point. God is the point. He does not exist for me, I exist for him. As long as I still have something, I believe I own it. But when I give it away, I relinquish control, power, and prestige that come with wealth. So first, give. Second, give proportionately. Give according to your income. If you make more, give more. 
One person can give $25 in an act of great sacrifice, whereas another can give a million dollars and not sacrifice at all. If someone makes $10 million a year, gives away $9 million, and spends only the other million on himself, we may be impressed, and it may be a relatively wise, eternal investment, but is it really sacrificial? I don't know. All I'm saying is you can't put a dollar amount on it. Give proportionately. Third, give generously. Now, how much is generous? Well, there's no one-size-fits-all answers. You can see I'm not, I'm not trying to give you uh, necessarily a dollar amount or some sort of figure to shoot for. I'm gonna, I'll give you one in a, little, a little bit to start with. But it's, it's really you need to evaluate your situation. Don't do that alone. Talk to us. Talk to other people. Okay, This is where we need accountability more than any other area, is our, our finances. There's not a one-size-fits-all answer. Randy Alcorn writes this. When a friend was deciding to try to figure out how much he should give monthly, he decided to give at least as much as his house payment. He told me, if I can't afford to give that much, I can't afford to live in a house this nice either. Now, if you've never tithed, Start there, then begin to stretch your generosity, okay? So if you need a figure, if you're like me, and you're like, okay, Caleb, I hear you say give, where do I start? Well, tithing is an Old Testament principle that's still a good thing. If you need somewhere to start, start with a tenth. Tithe simply means tenth, okay? So when we say tithing, just take a tenth. Tenth of what you make, tenth of your income, start there, and then begin to stretch it. Fourth, give regularly. Some people don't give at all, but most who do give do so sporadically. They might give two months in a row, skip three months, give one, skip two more. Some people don't give when they're on vacation. They don't give if they have the flu. Obviously, they don't make it to the offering plate that week, but they don't ever make up the giving that they missed. Think about this way. If I'm out of town when my house payment is due, I may pay it early or a few days late, but I pay it. Now, why should my giving to God be any less regular and disciplined? It's this hit and miss approach to giving that Paul wished the Corinthians to avoid. He says in 1 Corinthians 16, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum, a sum of money in keeping with his income. That's the principle that Paul gave to the Corinthians. Now, when Paul arrived to get the money for the needy, no last-minute collections would have to be made from people who had already spent what they should have given. Systematic giving is central to biblical giving. If you give the leftovers to God rather than the first fruits, there's often little or nothing left to give. Unless people give systematically, they rarely give substantially. They may give a few hundred or even a few thousand dollars a couple times a year and think of themselves as big givers. But here's the key. The people who consistently give 70, 100, $200 a week or three or $500 a month every month are the real backbone of the church. And that's key. Now, 
I oversee our finances at Redeemer Church. Let me tell you, that is absolutely the case. Because think about it. We have to plan ahead. We're already working on next year's budget. Now, how am I going to be able to do that unless I can look back and see a, a pattern of those who have given faithfully over the past several months and begin to plan out our expenses and income for the following year? But if we have two or three people giving you know, hundreds or thousands of dollars one or two times, can I count on that next year? The real backbone, the financial backbone of the church comes from those who give regularly, systematically, consistently. Okay. Fifth, give sacrificially. Give beyond your perceived ability. Now, what does it mean to give beyond our ability? It means to push our giving past the point where the figures add up. It's kind of where the rubber meets the road. We don't like this kind of thinking. It means to give when the bottom line says we shouldn't give. It means to give away not just the luxuries, but also some of the necessities. It means living with the faith of the poor widow who gave her last two mites. For most of us, giving according to our means would stretch us. Giving beyond our means would appear to break us, but it won't because we know that God is faithful. Lastly, principles for giving. Give cheerfully. Do you lack joy? It's one of the great blessings of giving. Giving is becoming like our Father. It just isn't just God's way of raising money. It's his way of raising children. Think about that. Giving sanctifies us as we relinquish control over the things of this world and we begin to focus our attention and our trust on our Heavenly Father who cares for us. Someone told me, God says not to give if you can't give cheerfully. I can't give cheerfully, so I don't give. That kind of misses the point. God wants us to be cheerful, yes, but he also wants us to be obedient. We aren't excused from being obedient because we can't be obedient cheerfully. The path to cheerfulness is not by abstaining from giving, but giving even when we don't feel like it. If we're not cheerful when we give, the problem is not the giving. The problem is our hearts. And the solution is redirecting our heart, not withholding our giving. Our heart follows our treasure. Put your treasure in God's kingdom, and a cheerful heart will eventually follow. God loves an obedient, cheerful giver. And we could go, there's a, there's a lot more principles of giving. I and mean, you can get as specific as you want. I mean, we could talk about how to do a household budget, you know, how much to spend on a house payment, and all these, all these things. And that's what the community of faith is for. So um, talk to one another about these things. Have accountability in your life when it comes to your financial situation. But as we end, I want to go back to what I just said. If we're not cheerful, the problem is our heart. And the solution is redirecting our heart, 
not withholding our giving. As I've said before, what we do with our finances or the finances that God has entrusted to us is a reflection of what's going on in our hearts. If you find yourself withholding giving, if you find yourself gripping tightly for security, the things of this world, I just ask you to consider the gospel. Are you remembering that God created all things? Do you remember? Do you need to be reminded this morning that God owns everything and he is sovereign and holy and he providentially has you where he has you and that is not by accident. He knows exactly your circumstance and he loves you more than any earthly mother or father could love their children. And if a father knows how to care for his own children, how much more does our heavenly father know how to care for us? I fear that the reason we struggle with giving is because a lot of us struggle with believing the gospel. We don't think right about money because we don't think right about the cross. We don't see that in, displayed in the cross is the greatest act of giving ever known to the world. And if we're going to model that, it reaches into every area of our lives. The cross impacts everything, not just what we do on Sunday mornings. But we are to give. Christians are to be givers, never takers. So, this morning, as we end, I just want to end by asking that question. Where are you with giving? Where are you with the gospel? There is a direct connection between what we worship and what we do financially. Are you giving? Are you giving proportionately? Are you giving generously? Are you giving regularly? Are you giving sacrificially? And are you giving cheerfully? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give because you gave. I pray that you would forgive us, Lord, of buying into the lies that our world tells us, Father. And it's, this has been the case for thousands of years. There's nothing new that's going on in our culture People from the beginning have been trying to find their own security, their own pleasure in the things of this world. And God, we are not immune from that. And so, Father, I pray that um, Redeemer Church would be full of men and women who give sacrificially, generously, and cheerfully to the work of the ministry. And that wouldn't just just mean on Sunday mornings in the offering baskets as, as we pass them by, but that we would look, Father, our eyes would be open for specific ways to love one another and serve one another in giving. If we see a brother or sister in need, we would be willing to, to sell anything, to take out any amount of money in order to bless them and care for them. God, make us a true community. May we have all things in common. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.